Hey everybody, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I am your host, Philip Kasumu, and today I had the pleasure of interviewing Samit Shah. Samit Shah is a principal at Brand Foundry VC. In this episode, Samit really does lay out the blueprint for anyone who wants to raise venture capital or anyone who's considering a career as a venture capitalist. This was a really informative show, guys, so make sure you've got your note-taking apps open for this one. Okay, Samit, thank you for coming on the show today. Absolutely, thank you, Phil. So, um, Samit, when you're at a WeWork event, or should I say Galvanize, because we're at a Galvanize co-working space today, how do you introduce yourself to people? Um, Wow, how do I introduce myself? I basically say, hi, I'm Samit. Uh, I'm over at Brand Foundry Ventures, a seed stage-focused venture capital firm focusing on the world of consumer products. Um, Kept it pretty simple. I mean, also... Welcome to Galvanize, listeners, I guess, best way to put it. Um, but it's such a great ecosystem that we recently moved here a couple months ago. Um, it's one of the best networks of entrepreneurs, VCs, intermediaries to like banks and insurance companies and law firms that is really coming through within New York City. Um, they also have eight campuses in total across the entire nation. Uh, they're focusing a lot on dev classes and data science classes, but of course having some great companies like major corps like IBM and PwC all the yeah. way down to young startups. So good stuff here. Yeah, great. And now before we get into the whole Brand Foundry VC stuff and what you're doing here, um, let's get into your background. So where are you from originally in terms of, are you from New York or where are you from and how did you get to the, where you are today? So I'm from a very foreign land known as New Jersey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice big river between... Uh, New York and New Jersey there, and right. unfortunately, uh, there's a bunch of Jerseyans that will sometimes think they're New Yorkers, but uh, I can say that being a native. But uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey, right. uh, central New Jersey to be specific, in a town called Warren. Uh, ended up at Columbia University as a biomedical engineer, graduated there in 2008, and started my career actually in all of the spaces where all biomedical engineers focus in, which is private equity. Yeah. Um, ended up at a private equity consulting shop called Gotham Consulting Partners. Uh, I joined there because it's all engineers. It was run by, it's currently run and started by a chemical engineer. Um, and I had the opportunity to work a lot across the operational improvements for companies themselves, actually getting down and dirty and working across the plants and floors sure. with them uh, for these private equity backed companies or companies they were looking to acquire. So I did that for five years, did project work for the first two, Ran business development for the last three, then moved over to the startup world in 2013 and joined a mobile and app development studio called Just Digital. Uh, a couple friends were starting the company, one of them being the former head of mobile for Gannett and the head of mobile for AOL right. during its biggest heyday. Wow. If you actually draw the lines back to some of the most successful technologists out there and developers, you can actually draw them all the way back to AOL Wow! and, and his team to be specific, which is crazy. Fun fact. So, yeah, fun fact. <laughs> um, before then, the moving that startup world, in 2011, I, through a mutual friend, met my now colleague and partner at Brand Foundry, Andrew Mitchell. Yeah. So he is an operator by background, building businesses in the health and beauty space, also had an angel shop called Zig Capital, where he was a day one investor in companies like Birchbox, Harry's, Warby Parker, and Peloton. I was very much an architect for a lot of those companies, helping for development of things for Peloton, specifically the bike. Uh, Built a shaving cream for Harry's. Harry's, Also helped scale Birchbox and Warby uh, with the teams there. 
Um, so we're, we are going to get into all of that. No, 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 of course. I know, I, I, know, I, I know I'm literally just going all through stuff. But that's well, basically, that all came through where I met him during that time frame and then met him late and then reconnected with him later on, ah, which okay. led to it. Yeah. Interesting. Sorry, I got a little bit too deep in that. No, it's fine, it's fine, it's good. <laughs> You're in the zone. Um, yeah. So for most listeners, they don't actually know the difference, the key difference between private equity and venture capital. Mm. So how do you explain the difference between the two? Yeah, so it's it's always hard to to figure out the right medium to mm-hmm. explain it to people. But um, the difference between venture capital and private equity is basically in terms of the stage of when you're investing in the business. Venture capital firms tend to invest earlier, meaning that the company might even be pre-revenue, so may have not even made a cent of right. money yet. It uh, might even be pre-product. Uh, then there's earlier stage, which is known as the seed round or series A rounds. And basically, when private equity looks to come in, their first major criteria is that the company has to be profitable. So they're looking for profitability in the space. Uh, There are some firms that will focus on what's called distress, which is unprofitable, but they're more of like companies in danger. But more importantly, that's the focus towards them. And these are companies that are putting in, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 million dollars at least per company and could do significantly larger ones. Like these are companies that will pay, you know, a quarter of a billion to a billion dollars plus for investments and, and, and deal flow. That's probably the easiest way to describe. It's just really the biggest difference between profitability and unprofitability. Sure. Awesome. So um, you said that you met Andrew. How many years before you met Andrew did you actually join Brand Foundry? What was the the time difference? So about three years, actually. Um, I met him in the middle of 2011 during my time at Gotham Consulting Partners. And then we reconnected at the end of 2013 as I was spending a lot more time at GIST and a lot of founders were just coming to me and saying, hey, can you help us raise capital? Mm. You're trying to find some ways to get this done. Sure. I'm like, I'd love to help, but the person I know really well who can do this, I haven't talked to in two years, and I'm really sorry. But coincidentally, after saying that, Andrew had reached out to catch up. Uh, we reconnected in the beginning of 2014. I offered to send startups his way out of goodwill. Next thing I know, he poached me, and we started Brand Foundry in March of 2014. Oh. That's actually the second story I've heard of someone doing voluntary um, startup sourcing before they joined a VC. It seems like the, the way to go, right? Oh, it's so it's funny you mention that. That's <laughs> what I like to call the untold fourth way yeah. to get into VC. Mm. Um, there is a great guy in the VC world named Matt Turk. Matt Turk is one of the partners at First Mark Capital. And he wrote a blog post, actually, talking about what's called the fake VC. Mm. And... I'll refer to that in a second, but basically there's three ways majorly that people know how to get into venture capital, where it's um, go to business school, which, yeah. I mean, you can go do that if you'd like. It's $200,000. <laughs> just got to remember that. That's the, there's a cost behind it. Yeah. Um, so something just to always, I have to always mention that, the, the realities of it. Um, work for a high-flying startup. It may not be venture-backed, but it's doing very well. It's got a great team. Yep. And so you can build out your, carve out your space here so people can recognize your talents and strengths within the sector, within your company. And then the third being work for a venture-backed startup. Work your way to connect with the VC firm that's invested in your company. Work with the people um, who are there and then basically get your target on your back stronger. But then there's that untold fourth way is to be kind of a thought leader in your space. So let's say you focus in the world of health and wellness. Like, are you running various events? Are you talking about the space? Are you writing about things? It's something very important about the world of social media that you can actually utilize to your 
uh, to your advantage, things of the microblogging spaces like Twitter, things yeah. of the blogging perspectives like the medium posts of the world, but also just engaging people as well. Yeah. And I know this engagement is going to be a common theme across this podcast because uh, in terms of the questions I imagine you're going to ask about this evolution of venture capital and how even to talk to VCs, it's that kind of planned engagement in a way where it's very tactical which is there's a kind of a you've done your homework kind of perspective yeah. that is really going to resonate across people in general mm-hmm. um so that's basically where that untold fourth way or that fake vc yeah that i mentioned about what mac turk had mentioned in his post is really what you should be thinking about doing i've had many friends that have done it and as also admittance a lot of junior vcs get into venture capital by accident because mm. they don't actually really think about getting in, but they're just really great, talented people, men and women, that are really getting the opportunity to come on in. Yeah. So there's a lot of that accidental strategy that happens. Yeah, because it's not like heavily advertised. You would never see it on like an Indeed. <laughs> no, <laughs> like no, absolutely not. <laughs> no, you definitely don't see that. Uh, I will agree with you there, man. But yeah. uh, what's just really exciting about the perspective is uh, – People always look at VC as this like ivory tower, hard to get to industry, yeah. and it is hard. There's no question to get Seemingly a career. Like esoteric, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's it's not. I will have to admit, like if you compare it to a lot of the worlds of finance in terms of pit jobs and how they pay, it's not up there in terms of the top. Mm. It's pretty high up, but it's like it's pretty high up as you get higher into partner track level yeah. businesses. But that's also again. Just talk about the realities about it behind it. Sure. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit now. Um, so venture capital—it's a bit of a love-hate relationship, especially from a startup founder's perspective here. Um, and there's loads of different philosophies and practices that every VC has. Mm-hmm. But as you're here, I'm going to tackle and dig into your one. So, when should a startup consider going for venture capital? I don't think there's a perfect answer to that. Right. I think. Um, if you have the opportunity to talk to a venture capital, a venture capitalist, yeah, even early on when you're still even on concept mode for it, especially for the fact of just getting feedback, yeah, that's what's important. Mm. Um, I will explain in so many panels, conferences, interviews, whatever you want to say, um, that if you want to approach a VC at an event and you've done your homework on the person and you know that person aligns to what you're working on, Yeah. you come to the person, explain what you're working on, and say, I'd love to get your feedback. What do you think? Yeah. Eight times out of ten, they'll be actually giving you questions. They'll ask, ask a couple questions about what you're working through. Sure. That very useful conversational perspectives. And if you can get that kind of rapport, another eight times out of ten, they'll be happy to grab a coffee with you for 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever, just to kind of walk through things. Sure. The best companies that VCs will end up investing in are the ones where they can have and feel comfortable with that two-way street and conversational approach to the founder. Um, And they've kind of seen the progression over time, I guess. Exactly. But the bigger thing is it's more because, and this is why I say there's never a perfect answer, the relationship between an investor and a founder, let alone a VC, because it could be an angel investor too, it's it's a two-way street. Because we are much invested in your future as much as you're invested in us. Sure. And it's primarily because we're going to be in the trenches with you for three to five years at least in terms of for venture capitalists. For angels, it could be significantly longer even. And it's so imperative to recognize how how comfortable you feel, you know? Mm. Like a lot of people – it's funny. I was catching up with Haley Barna um, 
the, the, the co-founder of Birchbox and, of course, over at First Round Capital now yeah. a week or two ago. And we, we joke is that like, a lot of people compare it to dating. And it's true. It's very much <laughs> like dating. And yeah. I actually use instead of the dating world because it's it, – I just don't feel comfortable with that term. I just say, like, it's, it's military. It's like you're literally building a battalion together, right? Yeah. And it's – you have the squadron even that – matters so much in terms of we have our group of companies that we're always going to come through. But we have to be as hands-on as possible without interfering with day-to-day mm. that we know that we're going to be hindering it. Yeah. So in terms of just really talking to that VC, just as long as you've done the homework to know that it makes sense to talk to that person, that guy or gal, it's never too early. Never too early. So you guys do C-stage investments in Series A, right? Correct. Um, What's the earliest you guys have invested in a company? And can you give an example of what that kind of process looked like? So we invested pre-seed in a company um, that had not had revenue, right. but it was a much smaller term, uh, somewhere $500,000 or less of sure. the total round. Not going to delve specifically into just for um, confidentiality purposes. Yeah. But it was a company in our first fund, which is building this next generation platform for emerging young fashion designers. Cool. Um, the company has done extremely well. And the bigger thing about it is it's got this great mix between the B2C and B2B environments and markets that they tap into. Mm. Now, the process behind it was... It's, it's very early investment. It's probably something we're not going to do very often, especially yeah. now we're working out of our second fund, which are doing half a million to million dollar checks to sure. lead yeah. on seed deals now. Yeah. But with this situation, we had two great founders. We have two great women founders, I should point out, who are just so technically strong in what they do, one on the operation side and one on just like the face of the brand and understanding the platform to it. Right. I mean, I want to talk about her specifically where uh, this girl, Amanda, she is a person where... She could have her back up against the wall, but is always going to still keep fighting because yeah. she truly believes in what she's building. And as she should, because what she's working on is something that absolutely needs to be built. Right. So it's that combination where we've got the passion of the founder, but the recognition of how what they need to do to build the next generation of products and things for it. Yeah. That we were excited to invest in them. So there are a few other companies that we've done pre-seed style investments in. Even, you know, technically, I guess it was a sort of pre-seed investment in a company called Lola in the feminine hygiene space. Yes, I've seen them. You know, Jordana and Alex are amazing women, and they've built something that just makes sense, right? Yeah. But their brand mentality of a very unapologetic space, tackling what for a long time was such a taboo space in feminine mm. hygiene yeah. with tampons, pads, liners, just blood in general, just, just talking about things that, first off, were dominated by men in yeah. terms of the actual executive perspective and marketing message, but more importantly, it's a system that just needed to be addressed on on even the consumer healthcare side of things where the FDA doesn't require feminine hygiene companies, tampon companies to actually list the ingredients. And there's well, a lot of chemicals in there. Yeah. It's not just just doesn't again, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's pre seed round where it was over a million dollars that was coming in, but like it was something that we just believed in, again, founders-wise. You can kind of see the trend here. Sure. Um, so did they, had a, did they have a product when they approached you? They were about to launch. They are about to launch, um, right. So we had a couple of investments that we've done pre-launch. Uh, we will still look at pre-launch. And actually, of our in our second fund, two of the three companies are pre-launch right now. One of them had been doing small testing in the market to go out and see where they need to go. But more importantly, 
um, they really had basically 75% of the company ready to go in terms of launch. So these sound like, I guess, isolated cases, as you would say. So generally speaking, traction, what does good or significant traction look like to you mm-hmm. guys? Because it seems like a seems to be like a moving average for many VCs at the moment, especially for guys with like software products like apps and whatnot. So what is good enough traction for you to be like, okay, this is interesting? So I will say though, pre-launch pre-revenue is definitely something that we're still gonna continue to look at very heavily. Okay. Because it's more about again, investing in those the founders. founders sure. Right. We're gonna look at a company that's getting like 75, 80% of the way there in terms of before to launch. And we know that we can help tie everything together on that position and get the company to build into a true sustainable business. Right. Not a startup, a business. Right. But when I'm thinking about the traction space, one of the biggest criteria pieces that we're now focusing on for funds two is we're looking for companies that can generate half a million to a million dollars in revenue in its first year. Okay. So it's something that can showcase between 50 to 100K uh, in a monthly run rate. So month, basically monthly revenue. The bigger position is that that's a great number guide point that you can really justify to showcase that there's validation here. There's like, oh, we've got something here. Mm -hmm. I mean, to start, it is much, much, much harder to start a product business, a product startup, I should say, versus a tech startup Mm -hmm. because it's much easier to grab tech. It's much easier to grab people and build something just and and pull on on customer and users that that can go rampant across tech. It's much harder to scale a tech startup because the competitive landscape and the barriers to entry can be much lower. And Mm -hmm. with product, it's much easier because you actually have assets that you can, if things don't go well, you can actually sell, Mm -hmm. which is at least comforting. Sometimes you can't sell the code with tech and you can lose everything, which is very scary sometimes. Interesting. So in terms of, I guess you said there's a difference between a startup and a business. Can you just explain that a bit more? Mm -hmm. I wish I had the exact quote. Uh, Dave McClure of 500 Startups actually had a really good breakdown between a startup and a business, but it's just really understanding your, like it's it's pieces of business model and profitability. I mean, profitability, we'll put that on this side for now. Um, But it's just really a good sustainable business model. Like, and also just the recognition about how every method, every, every action that the founders take that is part of the company, how it comes back to the whole brand mentality, right? right? So if you take, let's say, let's say a company like Lola, yeah. right? when they go out and do these very, do out things in social media, for example, they do these various social media strategies, say Instagram, and showcase about things, or even they do their content play with what's called the broadcast. Yeah. Um, how is this content play bringing it back to the brand mentality of Lola, where it's focusing on Let's talk about yeah, women's health. Exactly. Let's talk about women's health. Exactly. Talk about the future of women's health and, and how it's coming through. And, and it, it's it's something that of a various division of a brand that people can feel comfortable with. So there's another thing I'm going to mention. I've been mentioning this this piece all week, and it's something that I just got so excited reading. Um, Tyler Haney from Outdoor Voices and Emily Weiss of Glossier yes. were on doing interviews with TechCrunch Disrupt, and they were yeah. talking about the concept of community. TechCrunch tried to bait them and being like, oh, you have such great celebrity following. It's like, that's not the point. Mm. The point is how you, t- you, you have this human touch effect. You have this human effect to your current and or potential customers. And actually, sorry, current and potential customers. Right. Where you're building these spaces, offline spaces, online spaces, where people can feel comfortable mm. in a way, right? You, you see these things that Emily was saying is that people would come into the Glossier showroom 
and not even to buy anything, but they just felt like this is this is cool, this is my place. Yeah. And it's really exciting for her to say that because Glossy has this cool girl vibe, but it's not like a ivory tower price point of things where you're just un- almost unaffordable. It's just people feel cool. It's the same way that you sometimes see with Warby Parker. Yeah. Like even if you go to a retail store, you find people that won't buy stuff, but they just get this like, I can feel like this vibe. And it's mm. not not enclosed. It's not fake. It's not facetious. It's 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 welcoming for everyone. Right. So when you see that kind of perspective come through, and obviously there's going to be a target customer that over time is going to be more common for it, mm. it's that perspective that we care so much about, that human touch that comes through that brings back again just the brand of it all. And it yeah. does it and it's not just for product business. It's even for even tech companies. Take yeah. Slack, for example. Yeah. You know, it's a household name in the tech world, but it's also something that now is slowly cr- try making its way into the mainstream yeah. where people are using Slack in terms of working with things and productivity. Cool. Okay, so just, you know, trying to focus more so, I guess, on the VC side of things. So you mentioned earlier that um, if you want to get in contact with a VC and you've done your research and you know they're going to be at this event, you know, mm-hmm. go and give them, go and have a word with them and try and get some advice. So generally, apart from that, how or what is the best way for people to contact startups? If they don't, I mean VCs rather, if they don't have immediate connection or someone to introduce them, like what's the best way? I was going to say the best way to contact startups is just go walk into a WeWork, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, or walk into a Galvanize, of course. Um, again, it's all about doing your homework mm. and it's the tactical perspective I was mentioning earlier. So let's say VCX that you really like or would love to just feel that it's comfortable for it. Sure. That person may have written a blog post within your space. That mm. would make sense like if they're coming through it. That's your entry point. You're just like, oh, hey, saw you wrote about ABC thing. And whether it's writing on Twitter, sending it through Medium, finding their LinkedIn, finding an email, like whatever. Like, honestly, email is usually one among the top. LinkedIn's kind of further on the bottom in terms of uh, response rate. But just like, yes. it's all about being tactical behind it. And it's not in terms of like selling it. It's more of the fact it's like, hey, I saw you wrote about XYZ. And you'll be working at the space. I uh, would love to, you know, would love to learn more about like where you're thinking through this and love to share, what you, share with you what we're working on. Yeah. And it's basically selling without selling in the idea that you're not asking for capital, you're asking for an additional opinion Mm. from someone in the space or someone who's looking in the space to take a look at, almost like a fresh set of eyes perspective. Obviously, they'll get an idea that maybe you might be raising, but if you try to make it as conversational and as comfortable as possible, you can see a couple of... Trends here, yeah. um, <laughs> common common themes we're talking I about see here. Why dating is so used? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> transferably. Exactly. But it's just it's it, even just in general human nature. You make yeah. someone comfortable. You make them feel happy. You make them feel like you can keep their morale up. Mm. Your productivity just skyrockets. Like morale and productivity are directly related. And True. it's a position where you just build the relationships across from it. I've had various founders who I've talked with where. We may have passed on their deals because conflict of interest may have been because um, just too too late, too early, too whatever. But it's just the idea that I get to at least still keep learning from them. And I'd be completely open and honest about it. Like Again, one also thing I'd love to mention is that try to get as much honesty from uh, the VCs or, fa- or, or investors that you're going to be talking with because you're also not just forgetting the idea of whether or not they're going to fund you, but also just the content of their character. Mm. 
And there's a lot of good VCs out there that will try to help. Yeah. They'll always try to open doors for people. Yeah. And they're wonderful human beings that are out there. Mm. I can name a bunch of them, but what's exciting is that you're even going to find some of them that they may people may not know well that will want to help. Yeah. But also, you're going to find people who just be like, oh, you know, good luck. And yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, there are a significant number of VCs like that. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere not too long ago, I can't remember where exactly, but... The blog post basically said, don't waste time speaking to associates at VCs because they can't make decisions. <laughs> okay. Please, nobody, that? nobody listen to that. Please don't do that. And it's... Wait, don't do what? Don't okay, 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 okay. No, 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 hold on. So, yeah. Um, I remember that post and it got a lot of attention. Yeah. And even people like Paul Graham have said this and it got me very angry yeah. because... So Paul Graham's a seasoned veteran yeah. in the in the in the startup space and I respect him. I don't agree with a lot of things he says, but it's just especially something like that mm. gets me very gets my blood boiling because yes, there are associates that literally will just will go out to source deal for comp- competitive landscapes. And the thing is that you can do the homework to recognize what's going on on that level. Yeah. The bigger thing is that partners do that too and it's fucked up. But <laughs> the first thing is you just have to qualify the situation. Mm. If you get connected with an associate and an associate reaches out or whatever comes through, you got to qualify the conversation. Yeah. Recognize in terms of like, hey, you know, love to chat with things. Like just make sure, first off, if you're going to get a conversation, keep it short, 20 minutes, half an hour, because usually associates, and I'm saying this also as a former senior associate, um, now principal of Brand Foundry, but like focus on the vision mm. because they're going to want to get some stuff where they're going to take to their board meeting. And a lot more associates have a lot more clout in the VC world than you really think yeah. in terms of actually pushing deals forward, yeah. especially because partners are re- relying on the associates to mm. find fresh deal flow. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, it's recognizing the, 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 the relationships and qualities and things of the associates as well. And again, it's like coming back to doing your homework. Yeah. You're going to find a lot of associates that are also writing stuff and putting stuff together and talking mm. through things. Yeah. So there's a, I don't know much about the associate perspectives in Silicon Valley when it comes to the VC community. Sure. Um, I'm not as well connected out there. But when I, it comes to New York, there are a significant number of associates who are very tapped into the networks and very tapped into the spaces. Yeah. And that's why those partners end up pushing on them very hard. I mean, I can give you a great example of of one guy. Like Julian Moncada is like in the associate level, like senior associate level position of, of, of Lara, but... Julian is awesome. Like the guy is very tapped into the networks and things and is a great person to have the conversation about visions and things and making sure that what makes sense. You've got various people across that bid level, like senior associate level positions and even principal level positions of things that that can push things around. Um, It's just, it's, it's something that I, always get very irked yeah, by. Yeah, I can imagine because it was your title once. Well, yes, because I'm just like, okay, you don't want to talk to me? Then fine. Like, yeah. I, it's, it's, and, it, it, anyway, you, this, that's really all I got to say yeah, about it. No. It's just, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Okay. Um, got to work towards wrapping up now, but um, can you think of a startup that you guys invested in that failed? Um, what did they do wrong and was it preventable? So fortunately, none of our startups have failed, okay. which has been really helpful. And we've been around for three years. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there a word yeah. here that I can knock? Um, we have 20 companies right now in the portfolio. 
and okay can you think of one that's not doing so well yeah i can i can think about ones that have also just bumped in through things so yeah. there's one company that was making this product and they ran into a supply chain issue when they launched last year and it crippled the company massively oh wow and to the fact that half the team got laid off yeah. and it was really difficult it's one of my biggest pushes like my biggest favorites of of the in the in the first fund and the woman who runs the company, she's like one of the most anal retentive people when it comes to product, but she has a very seasoned experience behind it. Right. And it was it was rough because it was very like for someone who had launched products almost with barely any issue, and this was the first thing that happened through it. And there was just a wave of just disarray that came through. But the bigger thing was that it could have sunk the company entirely. Yeah. Right. The bigger thing was that she was able to sit down with her current cap table, including ourselves, and work on renegotiating some things in terms of the next steps of investment, like getting an extra bridge on on a value that you know that uh, may have not been the thing that we wanted next. But it was more because you got to focus on the founder. You got to yeah. focus on how you feel about this founder, yeah. right? The this is in the trenches, two way street. Like yeah. Getting common themes here. Yeah. Um, and it's tough because. You really want this, I, I really want her to succeed, not even just as an investor, but as a friend, because it's something that can truly change the game in the area that she's focusing in, the world of wearables. Yeah. But um, it's that recognition about not just knowing what went wrong, but the founder being open about yeah. it. Yeah. Right? Because if you fail and you're not open about it, you're basically blacklisted mm. in the entrepreneur world. Because just it's it's hard to be honest. It's hard to be open about how you fucked up, what went wrong, was mm-hmm. it in your control, and if not, what happened. But it's that extra self recognition of falling down before we get back up. I yeah. mean, you know, what happens when we fall down? We just pick ourselves back up and just keep fighting. Sure. Um, it's that's probably the first the example that I'll use. But it's also because the thing's gonna be relaunched very soon and. There's so much ahead to look forward to. Okay. Um, okay. And at the moment, what are you and Andrew very bullish on, if anything? Products, mm-hmm. industries, anything you guys are like hoping to see or, or looking for like aggressively? So I'm excited to consistently see more startups that are tackling these antiquated industries. There's one area that I personally wish that I put a lot more time into. Um investing in which is contact lenses actually so there's like simple contacts and hubble that are two big ones that are doing great work and it's run by basically like AccuView and a bunch of these major contact lens companies um there's pockets like that that i'm watching very closely that where these companies in terms of how they're going to actually tackle places that it's like turning around an aircraft carrier i mean you're watching the world of vitamins and supplements we're invested in uh in a, su- in a supplements business that will be launched later this year. Interesting. And, yeah, it's one of those that's that's not on the website. Um, it's really all I can say about right now. Yeah. Um, but... If they need any uh, testers. You know. Yeah, no, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, I, will let, I will actually let you know, Phil. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, so, uh, this is what happens when you put two and two together, right? Yeah. Um, but it's... The vitamins and supplement space has been pretty busy. Like, you've got yeah. companies like Ritual, companies like Care of, so on and so forth that... Mm, Soylent. Um, so, Soylent even, yeah. In, but that's, like, on the product space, but even just on the vitamin perspective. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you know, Amazon's about to launch its own pharmacy. 
yeah, right? And no, I mean, look, but it's because they're literally they're tapping into every single major startup space that is starting to do really well. Like they're yeah. building their own furniture. There's a bunch of yeah. great furniture startups that are out there. Yeah. I mean, just mattresses, toothbrushes, whatever the heck is coming through. Now, yeah. obviously, you got to qualify the scalability sure. perspective of it. Like, take toothbrushes for example. Yeah, it's a big opportunity. Um, how big is it? Not massive. It's it's definitely something where you can build a great business, and you got the gobies and, and, and the quips of the world, right? Did you guys in, get invested in? Uh, we did in not both? invest in either, uh, okay. but I did meet both. Um, my colleagues actually, I have colleagues who invested in both companies. Right. Um, not both at the same time. That sure. would be fucked up. But yeah. yes, <laughs> um, but um, you've got various ones that are just tackling in these spaces where massive companies are just taking a long time to actually again innovate and yep. recognize. But even in terms of innovate is being aware of your customer, how you're actually responding to it. And it's just one of my favorite ones that I'll close on is just watching how Gillette, just their way of tackling Warby, or uh, Harry, sorry, and Dollar Dollar Shave Club is being the schoolyard bully and saying like, our product's physically superior. And in return, they basically uh, activated what's called the Streisand effect, where because you talked about this small competitor that really no one really had known about, Everyone's going to find out about yeah. it. <laughs> and yeah. So it literally bites you in the ass in the Literally, end. Yeah. And it's, it's exciting because obviously Dollar Shave Club sold for a billion dollars to, mm-hmm. to, to, to Unilever. Unilever. And everyone's asking, like, what's Harry's going to do? I'm like, Harry's is in control of its own destiny. Yeah. You know? And it's great because they're in a position where they are just continuing to get, build great product and just the right opportunity comes through, they're going to take it. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere where yeah. Andrew was really involved in, like, yeah. Helping with the creams. Yeah, he built the shaving cream for Harry's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is so crazy to me when I think about it these days. Like, built the shaving cream for Harry's. He helped develop the bike for Peloton when John Foley went out for Kickstarter. Yeah. That company now is doing over $200 million in revenue. It is profitable. It is now, like, exploring options yeah. is all I can say about it. It's got all the stuff that's going on, yeah. which is amazing to me as a brand that has truly transferred to the mainstream. And it's something that... As a founder, your goal is to transfer your business to become a household name in the mainstream. Yeah. You know, second but second best thing, you hear the company's name, you know exactly what it does. Yep. First best thing, you see the logo, you know what that you know company what is. is. Yeah. And the fact that Andrew was so hands-on is something that all founders look for in VCs. Because, you know, a lot of VCs say founder-friendly and, you know, help you grow, but yeah. they give you the money and they go missing. A lot. There are a lot of VCs that come from it. And, you know, there was, it's even funnier, too, because there was the other piece that I saw that Mark Cuban at the at the Lair Lair song was like, I am an investor, not a VC, because VCs don't help people. Mike. Okay. Um, (laughs) I read that too. (laughs) Yeah. And Um, it's funny because you're saying it at a summit for a venture capital firm that is really founder friendly. Yeah. That does a lot of work with their portfolio companies. Heck, they even incubate companies now out of their space in Lair. So you just sit there and you're just kind of like... Bad-mouthing them. Uh, you know, it's just like, your, your timing couldn't be more perfect, fucker. It's like, I'm like, I mean, all due respect to Mark Cuban, but like, <laughs> buddy, like, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, but again, it's, it's to each their own, right? Yeah. It's to each their own in terms of, uh, to each their own in terms of how they feel. It's all about respect. You got to have the respect for these people in terms of what they've done and what they've accomplished. Sure. But... Being respectful is also in the position where how much you agree or disagree. And yeah. you find the right spaces to 
make sure you can openly discuss about it, right? Yeah. And it's, the quote was outlandish mm-hmm. in a way, but what's more important about it is where do we go from here? I think mm-hmm. it's a common theme even just about things that come out in the entrepreneurship world and startup world, like from the debacle that is uh, how bad it is to be a woman in tech to being a minority in tech yeah. to how funding is just becoming a problem. It's just, we got to work on this. We're yeah. getting there though, but the great thing it's is where do we go from here? Things yeah. are getting better. Yeah. Um, what's the one book that you recommend most founders or all founders to read? So I'm working on it right now is Venture Deals by Brad Feld. But also one really interesting book that I read uh, not too long ago was called Things a Little Bird Told Me, which was um, Biz Stone's book on Twitter, Okay. which was really interesting. I actually met him a couple years ago at a conference. And it was interesting because it was with a bunch of private equity guys. Uh, so him to speak in front of it was, was quite interesting. But... It's a great book because it also focuses on a lot of key components about how to start a business well. So that's what I would recommend. Cool. Uh, biggest inspiration? Biggest inspiration? My parents. Why is that? Both are self-made people. They fought tooth and nail for our entire lives, for their entire lives to make my life and my brother's life just a little better. Yeah. And that fire that you need to just focus on things and, mm. and do well, but also just to turn around and just see how your how your family is doing yeah. is something that just is so impressive to me. And it's something that, you know, my mom is my biggest influence for why we invest a lot in women. You know, mm. Out of our 20 companies, 12 out of them are run by women. And it's something that we didn't do on purpose, Yeah, but it's just something that we now take, yeah, we now take a lot of pride in it. And it's more that we're investing in the great founders. And yeah. we're just, it's pretty awesome that 60% of them are run by women That's or amazing. co-run by women. Yeah, even. you guys need to make more noise about that. Well, <laughs> you know, we're, we're doing it selectively because yeah. the, the danger behind it is that everyone's going to be like, oh, you're selective bias. You're a white dude and an Indian dude investing in girls. Like, what the fuck do you know about, like, feminine <laughs> hygiene products and lingerie yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, and things yeah. like that? And yeah, I'm like, for, yeah, right. yeah, and so there's, there's the position where, like, that can also backlash on it. But the thing for us is that, We'll let our reputation speak for ourselves. Sure. That's what matters more in the end. Yeah. Uh, and what's the one piece of advice that you give to all startups? I know, you know, it's case by case and everyone's different, but like generally, what's the one piece of advice that you can give to startups? Reach out if you're not doing well. Um, one of the scariest things that I've been also personally tackling on the side is mental health in the world of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Mental health in the workplace in general is yeah. a mess. Yeah. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, I mean, sometimes a significant amount of the time you have founders that are working seven days a week and it can feel like the loneliest place on earth. Yeah. Um, there are, are various organizations and things and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start personally working on some things. And I know Brad Feld actually from Foundry Group has been writing a lot on the subject. But... If you're not doing well, there are various great communities in wherever you're at, city-wise, town-wise, whatever, that are trying to build better places. But even just finding people, a lot of people will commiserate with you in terms of how you're feeling. Um, Just make sure you're not just so much maintaining a right work-life balance, but if you're starting to feel closed off, unhappy, depressed especially, there is this community in the startup ecosystem, There's there, which is everywhere, that 
people will commiserate. Mm -hmm. And I cannot stress that enough that if you're not doing well, you're not feeling great, you're just, just you're, 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 you're stressed, you're depressed, you just feel like you're not getting anywhere, you just don't feel like this is going to be the, the solution, ask, reach out. Yeah. And even to VCs, because we see this all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. We're, we're looking at 200, 250, 300 businesses, concepts, things, ideas, probably per month. And there's not enough to actually look at the people behind it. So I can't, again, I'm not beating, beating a dead horse here, but just can't stress that enough. Yeah. I think that's a good note to end on. Um, where can people find you, Samir? Um, best thing if to do. If you want to be found. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just press this button. I'm going to go to an invisible <laughs> elevator. Um, <laughs> uh, Twitter is actually the fastest way. Yeah. P-E feeds, P-E underscore F-E-E-D-S. Um, you can shoot me through the email, sumit at brandfoundryvc.com. It's pretty easy to figure out and find. Yeah, probably just two best ways to do it. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Absolutely, mate. So, guys, you know how we do it at this point in the show. I like to give you my top three key takeaways, and then you guys can tweet me yours. So, number one. So focus on building real relationships with VCs first. This can be considered a long process, but unless you've got $100,000 in monthly reoccurring revenue, this is just how it is. Um, VCs invest in people they know ultimately, so start building those real authentic relationships now. Number two, Simi also mentioned something called the untold fourth way. Um, this is a way to get into venture capital if you're considering a career in the industry. Now, unlike most jobs, you just can't apply online for a VC role. It just doesn't work that way. So you need to find a way to provide value to a particular partner at a VC firm. For example, Samit said he was sourcing deals for free initially to get real buy-in. Um, he also mentioned becoming a thought leader in your space. Now, these things will help you build your own brand as well as your credibility, which will make it a lot easier for a partner to want to hire you further down the line, which almost kind of ties in with the first point which I made in terms of building those relationships over time. It really does work. And finally, be tactful in your approach when you're trying to get in front of a VC. Now, unless you can get a warm introduction, email should be your first point of contact. Um, and what you want to do is really look for any content that they've written or tweeted about and use that as your initial conversation starter. If they've written something about your particular industry or the space that you're in, lead with that. And then you want to get feedback or opinion or their opinion rather on your product or whatever it is that you've created. Um, don't ask for money. Your objective here is to make them feel comfortable and to keep it as conversational as possible so you can get real buy-in over time. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Startup Hand-Me-Downs on iTunes and leave us a review. I would really appreciate that. And we're also on SoundCloud and Stitcher where you can also follow and leave a review. We're on Instagram at Startup Hand-Me-Downs and we're on Twitter at Startup H&D. As always, guys, thank you so much and keep grinding.